0: So this morning we are continuing in our hospitality series that we've been in the last few weeks. Um, Our lead pastor, Alex, is not with us this morning. He is on vacation, and we want to bless him into a good rest and time with his family. But we are delighted to welcome back Mike Waslick. Mike is familiar to many of us. He's been working as the Emerging Generations Engagement Facilitator. All right had to practice that (laughs) and so does he Uh, (laughs) Uh, with our presbytery in the Waterloo Wellington area he's been doing that for um, over a year year and a half now and uh, from what I understand of Mike's job he goes around to churches in our presbytery and helps to think about how to um, engage with sort of next generation millennials how to think about being more welcoming and hospitable to them and so we are delighted that he's here with us this morning and able to kind of share some of his wisdom and um, from the word of God with us this morning so I I would love to pray for you, Mike, as we begin. Thank you. God, we thank you so much for Mike, and we thank you for the ways that you've particularly gifted and equipped him for this work. And we pray your blessing on the work that he's doing. Would you increase and expand his impact and influence? And we pray for the churches that he's coming alongside, that you would um, help them to be attentive and to to take and embrace uh, maybe new ideas and teachings. And we pray for much fruit, God, from, from this work. Would you take and do beyond what we can ask or imagine? And we pray now for our time together, that you would speak your truth to us through Mike, and that you would allow us to have eyes to see and ears to hear the words that you would have for us. And I pray, God, that you would help us to leave here, um, not just having heard your truth, but has changed people from encountering you and your word together this morning. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks. thanks. thanks.
1: Well, good morning. And just before we start here, um, who here is a list maker? Just raise your hand if you're a list maker. Honey, raise your hand. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Right. I made the joke in the first service. Um, I'm I'm kind of a list maker. I like to make lists, although I then um, lose the list. And so it's useless to me. Um, my wife is a really, really good list maker. Uh, I make uh, the joke that she's like, she'll organize. She has like Excel spreadsheets that track her Excel spreadsheets. Like She's one of these. And because I'm married to her, I've gotten a little bit better at this. Um, but I make some lists sometimes. And I ask that because, you know, sometimes when we make lists... Uh, in our heads, we forget things or we can forget how long they are or how long they're supposed to be. Um, and in church, we do this a lot. We're going to talk this morning about welcoming people. And I think that as the church, we say, oh, we're super welcoming and we're really hospitable and we really love it when people come in. But in the back of our heads, we've got what we think is maybe a short list of things that, you know, if somebody were to walk into our church... We would really prefer them to like, you know, have these things or or at least be at this starting point or maybe like this kind of music or this kind of speaking or this kind of whatever. And and we think because, you know, we've been in the church for a while and we're sort of in this culture um, that maybe that list is it's not too long. But when we start to put that list on paper, sometimes that list of things that we wish we like maybe gets a little longer And this morning I have a video to sort of show this to you of all the places from uh, the Steve Harvey show. You know, the guy that uh, hosts Family Feud? He has a talk show now. I don't know how that happens, but he does. Uh, And he's talking to this woman who is really having trouble finding a date, and she can't quite figure out why. So
2: let's see if we we can help her out. Go ahead. Heather bought me her list of requirements, so let's check them out. He must be between 30 and 45, financially stable, no kids, 5'10 or taller, no hookups or flings, ready to settle down, no roommates, no smoking, must love dessert and can't be anti-sugar. Okay, but there's some more requirements, so let's take a look at these. Must be uh, honest, reliable, sweet and kind, quick-witted, romantic, must love food, must pay on the first date. No flowers on the first date, must be a social drinker, and must never wear sweatpants. What?
3: <laughs> the last guy I dated, he, we fought all the time because he wanted to go to Starbucks in sweatpants and go to breakfast in sweatpants, and no one should be doing that.
2: <laughs> all right, here we go. Let's see. Must be adventurous, must be humble, must be spontaneous, must be a planner, can't be self-centered, can't be cocky, must love dogs, can't own a dog from a breeder, can't be jealous of her dog, and can't own a cat. Okay, he can't be jealous of your dog.
3: So the last guy I dated, he admitted after a few months that he was jealous of my dog, and he was kind of mean to my dog in the beginning. And he said that... I gave my dog more attention than I gave to him. Did you? Well... <laughs> I mean, my dog never fought with me.
2: That's because your dog ain't got to live up to the choir.
3: <laughs>
2: you ready? Must be in shape. Can't have six-pack abs. Can't have six-pack abs. Can't be too skinny can't have a runner's physique can't be stronger than me can't be can't be obsessed with sports can't be a hunter can't own a boat can't be a gamer can't be materialistic uh, must respect the gluten must respect a gluten-free diet can't be too close to family and friends must open doors for me must be willing to move someplace warm. Must love traveling. Can't, can't brag about traveling. Oh, oh, we can go there, but you can't tell nobody. <laughs> you shut your
1: mouth. <laughs> You're
2: telling everybody we was in Arizona for. Uh, must maintain eye contact. Can't be a party boy. Can't be intimidated by me. Favorite season? Ca- what? <laughs> favorite season cannot be fall
3: they're so typical it's a very everyone's favorite season is fall and so then they want to go pumpkin picking and apple picking and and the haunted houses and and it's just like it's watching the same movie and knowing the ending every single time
2: do you like quiet time i do you gonna have a lot of
1: (laughs) 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 oh man yeah that's funny and you know, what? like, that's funny. It is. And like we watch and we're like, that girl is crazy. But you know what? Like we kind of do that a little bit in the church, don't we? If we were really honest with each other and we were really like, man, if we were to have a church and if we were to have a congregation that looked the way we want it to look, there would be a list there. And it might not be 16 pillars long, but it might be 14. I don't know. <laughs> and so this morning, as we talk about welcoming and hospitality, uh, we're going to talk about how we can make it a little bit easier. And because of my job uh, with the presbytery uh, in emerging generations, I'm going to take a bit of a spin, of course, for uh, how to make it easy a little bit for the younger generation. But first, uh, we're going to go into this uh, Bible story um, called the Jerusalem Council. It's found in Acts. But before we do that, I'm going to give you tons of background just for fun. Um, so uh, first of all, today's story comes from the Bible. It's good. Your Bible, the word Bible, I don't know if some of you know this, actually just means a book of books. So when we think of our Bible, try not to think of one book. Try to think of a book full of a bunch of other books. Your Bible is in two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Did anybody know? And nobody in the first service knew. Does anybody know that Testament means? It means promise or covenant, right? So this is the division in our Bibles. The Old Testament is uh, the Old Testament promise. Uh, or, or the promise in the, the Old Testament is uh, this promise through this guy named Abraham um, that a Savior will come uh, to uh, to save the Jewish people. And, of course, we know, uh, those of us that have been here for a few minutes know that that Savior was Jesus. And then the New Testament uh, is the story of Jesus and the building of the first century church and this idea that Jesus is going to come back. That's the promise. And today's story is from the book of Acts, uh, which sometimes we call Acts of the Apostles. And really, Acts is just the apostles are these guys that went out and, and preached the word of God and told people about Jesus, and so Acts is their act. So if we were to write a book called, like, Acts of Mike, it would be this morning I woke up 45 minutes late and then stumbled off to the shower, and then we went and picked up the baby, and then she threw up on me a little bit, but I didn't notice, so then we left the house, and then I got to court right, and then I found the throw up on my leg... And so on and so on. That would be like the Acts of Mike. So this is the Acts of the Apostles. This is what we're talking about. So let's dig into the story. Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. Certain people came down from uh, from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Uh, let's jump to my map here first real quick, um, just so that you know that like the places that we talk about, sometimes we forget. We think about the Bible and we're like, ah, oh, the places are over there. These are real places. So uh, Judah is uh, down here in this area, and then Antioch is up here, so sort of like up the Mediterranean Rim quite a bit. These people traveled like quite a bit of ways to have this conversation, so as we dig into it, let's remember that uh, that this conversation ended up being very important. Okay, let's keep going in our in our uh, scripture here. Uh, This brought Paul and Barnabas. uh, Sorry, um, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them, with the certain people that were teaching this. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed Uh, By the church and the apostles and elders. And then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said again, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Okay, so let's dig into this first part here a little bit. First of all, um, uh, the thing we're going to talk about is on the next slide, which will come up here in a second. Oh, oh, nope. Keep going. Nope. Forwards. Forwards. There we go. The certain people that we're talking about are like Jewish teachers or Jewish leaders, uh teachers of the laws, rabbis, or Jewish uh Jesus followers. This is the people that are teaching this thing about circumcision. Now I don't know about you. And ladies you have to know I'm probably speaking to the guys a little bit more here. Guys, if we're like a little bit older, like twenty, thirty, forty, and we're like, hey, there's like this Jesus guy and it's so cool and this can change your life and it is amazing and it is awesome. And before you get started, we're just going to take these scissors and we're going to go back behind this curtain that might hinder your ability to spread the message just a little bit. I've got one guy who's like, yeah, (laughs) I wouldn't be here. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So just, just a thought. Uh, Moses is an older Jew in the Old Testament, uh, Ten Commandments guy. This is Moses' big deal. And then the Gentiles, are you Jewish? No. Then you're a Gentile. So we're talking about you. Aren't we happy for the Jerusalem Council? Okay. So let's keep going. We'll dig a little bit more into the story. Uh, I, like I talked about, first century Jesus followers were spreading the message of Jesus, and they were trying to grow it to this new group of people, the Gentiles, these people that hadn't yet engaged with Jesus. And all of the Jews were circumcised by law, like uh, right after birth. So like as guys, as kids, like we weren't, it's not something we remembered at 30. I promise you I'd remember, but like three, seven days in, not something that really comes to mind. So this is actually a pretty big ask. So Paul and Barnabas, they see this and they go, we see a problem here. We're having a little bit of an issue. So they go and have this meeting to try to figure out what they can do. So the story continues. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you, that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, uh, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith, not by surgery. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither our ancestors, neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe that it is through grace of the Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Okay, so let's get into what we're talking about a little bit here. Peter, a Jesus follower, was called to teach the Gentiles. So in ministry, we all sort of have different roles, different things that we're good at, or that we're called to. I'm called to youth ministry, so outside of this Emerging Generations job, I'm also a youth pastor. Peter was called to preach the gospel to people who had never heard the gospel before. And he's saying God purified our hearts By faith, not by actions, not by something that we did. But Jesus came down and purified our hearts and said, if you believe in me, we're in relationship and we're good. And this unbearable yoke that we're talking about is, you know, we know about the Ten Commandments. Everybody refers to the Ten Commandments. But what we sometimes don't think about is there was a lot more than Ten Commandments. There was like 632 some odd Old Testament Jewish laws that if you were a good Jew, you needed to follow in order to have a relationship with God. And what he's saying is we can't even do this. We who have been Jews our whole life, we who have grown up learning this stuff like the back of our hands, we can't figure this out. We can't keep all these laws. So if we can't do it, why are we expecting people? that we're trying to enter into a relationship with Jesus to try to do this with us. That's insane. That's not going to work. And I'm sure a few people around the table went, "Eh, maybe you're right. (laughs) So what are we going to do about it? So they have this big meeting. They have this council. All of the big thought leaders of the church are there. And this is what they come up with. When they finished, James spoke up. And James, James, the brother of Jesus, James says, listen to me. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult For the Gentiles who are turning to God. And all the men said, Amen. Yeah, there we go. It's a more excited group than the first time. (laughs) Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat strangled by animals, and from blood. Actually, when you look at it in context, which we're going to do here, a pretty reasonable uh, list of things. First of all, James is the brother of Jesus, which I covered and he just says we shouldn't make it hard to get to know Jesus which i feel like around this room we would all generally agree right and he he keeps a couple of things in place and the stuff you know i'm not going to get into like the deep historical context of like everything that he keeps in place but but the, those things the, the the not eating food from from sacrifice to other gods well they're saying well you know if you're going to follow Jesus and somebody sacrifices to another god, don't eat the food. Like, it sounds pretty reasonable, and it's going to keep the peace with Jewish people. Same with the other two, sexual immorality and and, uh, and the food of strangled animals. It's They're cultural things that Jewish people are going to say, you know, it's going to be a lot easier for us to interact as groups if we can just keep a couple things in place. And so so what we're going to talk about this morning is, is how we as a church can can do what what Peter said was so important to make it a little bit easier for people to come in to make the gospel message, to make Jesus, to make our church, to make our communities just a little bit easier to enter into. And so because uh, my bent is the, the emerging generations, um, millennials and Gen Zers mostly, that's the direction I'm going to take this morning. Now, some of you are saying, I have no idea what a millennial and a Gen Zer is. And I I have that for you. But first, I want to ask a question. And and of course, the question again is this. What can we do here at Courtright to make Jesus' message more welcoming? So, just like every good sermon, I've got three ideas for you. Here's the first one. The first one is to understand your audience. OK, so we're going to understand audience. So I'm going to talk about millennials and Gen Zers. Now you're saying, I don't know what those are. I brought you a chart. Here's the chart. So silent generation. Are there any silent? Well, if. Yeah, there's probably some here. OK, if you were born between 28 and forty five, you're in the silent generation, if you're a boomer you're born between 46 and 64. If you're a Gen Xer, you're born between 65 and 80. And then the two that I'm going to focus on this morning, the Millennials and the Gen Zers, Millennials are 80 to 96. This is depending on what research firm you look at. And then Gen Zers are like 97 or 2000 to now. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. And, And what I'm going to talk about is one specific group of millennials and Gen zetters. And I'm going to talk about this group that we call the nuns. Now, I'm not talking about like Whoopi Goldberg, Sister Act, Big Hat, nun. Okay, I'm talking about the nuns. So if you were to take a census of this area and you were to say, are you Jewish? Are you Buddhist? Are you Christian? Are you Catholic? Are you atheist? Are you agnostic? A person that was a nun would go, I'm none of those things. I'm a nun. I don't care. I'm good the way I am. Now, in our region, in Waterloo, Wellington, in 1970, about 5% of our population was nuns. As of 2011, in Waterloo, Wellington, almost 25% of our region was nuns. And that's like a few years ago. I would imagine that number is probably higher. And I think the next census is going to do religious surveying again, and we'll figure it out. And a big number of this is uh, from Christians. Like the, the, the biggest dent from from that time period actually comes out of Christianity. Now, nuns are interesting because this is actually sort of exciting. It's a bummer that they're not Christians, but it's a bonus that they're not atheists or agnostics, right? There's opportunity here. It's not that they're not thinking about it at all. It's just they're not thinking about it at all. <laughs> right, And nuns have a very specific way that we need to consider them when we're considering welcoming, welcoming them or being hospitable into our churches. So I want you to think about it like this in 1960 or so. Uh, if if one was a person who had no relationship with Jesus that didn't really know anything in 10 was somebody that just became a Christian, you probably grew up at about an eight. Now, even if you didn't grow up in a Christian home and even if you didn't grow up going to church, there were prayer in schools. Most of the most of the population was religiously affiliated in some way. You probably know who Jesus is. You probably know that David and Goliath is uh, something more than a poorly used sports reference. You probably know Noah's Ark with the like happy little giraffes sticking out of the ark windows. Right. You know this stuff. So when we started to get people and and try to bring people to Jesus in like the 80s and 90s, we got this group that had all the head knowledge but just didn't have the heart knowledge. And so as churches, what we did is, is we took the knowledge they already had and we applied it practically to their lives. And then all of a sudden people started coming to faith and it was great. But this isn't where the nuns are. The nuns at best are probably a three. And this means that they don't know mostly who Jesus is. They don't know the difference between the Old Testament or the New Testament or the Bible compared to another book. They don't know David and Goliath is anything other than a poorly used sports reference. They don't know all of the basic stories that as Christians we go like, oh, yeah, that's just the basics. They don't know. Why is that important? Well, it's important because when we want to when we want to welcome people into our church, we need to consider who they are. When we consider who we're trying to welcome, we become more welcoming. When we don't think about the fact that people don't know the things that we know, we build barriers to growing the faith. In the same way that the Gentiles felt like there was a tiny little barrier Between them and faith back in the first century. So how can we do this? How can we make it a little bit more accessible? Well, one of the ways that we can do that is something we've already done this morning. And if you're new here, you might have noticed. And if you're not new here, you probably didn't. But you'll notice that everybody that came up this morning, before they did what they did as a part of the service, explained it. Allison took 15 seconds to explain prayer and the call to worship. And uh, later on, as we go through the benediction and a couple other things, we'll just sort of get a little 15-second, hey, this is what we're doing. And this means that if you're here this morning for the first time in church in a while, it's a little easier for you to follow. And if you're here for the first time, you know, since last week, it probably didn't make that much of a difference to you, but it helped us welcome people that aren't a part of our culture or a part of our subculture a little bit easier. And it's really important as a church that we start to think about the things that people don't know that we want to be here, right? When we start to consider our audience, when we can start to consider who we're trying to welcome, we become more welcoming. So my slides have given it away. But point number two today is we need to understand our audience. So Nun's are mostly Gen Z uh, uh millennials that's the survey spot. Let's talk about Gen Zers for a second. Let's talk about the 20 and under's. Here's some interesting thoughts about Gen Zers. One, they don't need adults to get information. Ooh, all the adults don't like me when I say that. <laughs> that's right. What I didn't say is they don't need adults for wisdom. What I didn't say is they don't need adults for discernment. What I said is we don't necessarily need adults for information, right? I don't know if you've heard this already, but even a church like Courtright, your front door here probably isn't your front door. It's probably your website. The first time anybody's ever interacted with your church, that's probably under 35, has gone to your website before they've ever stepped in foot here. That's an interesting thing to consider when we think about what information we're putting out and what we're saying about ourselves so that when people come in, we can talk about it. The difference between information and wisdom or information and discernment is the difference between telling first and listening first. The difference between answering a question first and asking a question first. And if our roles as adults, and I'm still getting used to this too, even though I've only been an adult for like a year is we need to start asking questions before we start answering them. We need to start understanding the people that are coming in our doors or the people that we want to come in our doors before we start telling them what's up, before we start telling them the rules they need to follow, before we start telling them all of the things that we know. What we need to do is we need to go, we know you know a lot of stuff. Let me hear about it. And that's a hard shift. But it's something worth considering. They can broadcast their every thought or emotion in real time. So think about this. Think about the dumbest thing you did when you were a teenager. I've got like three I can't choose between. Now think about if everybody found out about that dumb thing ten seconds after you did it. How would your life be different? Yeah, you, I did this at a, at a session meeting once, and the pastor went, I probably wouldn't be in ministry. And the person beside him went, I'd be in jail Right. But we kill the younger generation for this. What's the difference between the dumb stuff you did and the dumb stuff you're doing? They didn't know about it. (laughs) We need to be empathetic about that. We need to listen and we need to understand. We need to realize that as they're forming their identity. They're also making mistakes that now everybody is seeing. And we need to have patience and grace and mercy for those things. And if those are really the people that we want to walk in, which I think is, is what we want, well we need to really understand that. They're socially connected at all times, but they often connect in isolation. So that means that you have a group of of, of teens and, and, and early twenties who are always on their phones, who are always connected, who are always on FaceTime, who are always on Snapchat who are always on Instagram, which means they're always connected to each other, but often they do that by themselves. What does that mean for the church? That means when they get into a big group like this, they're out of their comfort zone. That's not something that that generation, as they grow up and start entering, now, I'm not, I'm broad brushstroking here, but generally speaking, they're going to be used to. We need to think about that when we are thinking about how we're welcoming and how we're being hospitable. And four, they will learn more from a portable device than anywhere else. Which I think is really interesting, right? Um, and there's ways as a church we can lean into that. I sit in these, uh, these workshops that I do all the time, and people go, I bring up cell phones, and people go, oh, kids in their cell phones. They need to put them away. They don't belong in church. I'm like, okay, let's get into it a little bit. And so we have a conversation and I say, how do you know what they're doing on their cell phone? Well, I don't know. And I go, well, you know what they could be doing? They could be fact checking the pastor in the middle of his sermon to see if he's full of it. Because that's the reflex. It's a Google reflex. I wonder if that's true. Right? Maybe they're looking something up. Maybe they're telling something about something. Maybe they're writing a note. I have an app called Evernote. I don't write handheld notes anymore. I write a note on Evernote. It goes to all my devices. I have all my notes everywhere I go. Still, somehow, I lose them. (laughs) It's ridiculous. There is no system that works for me. Right? We need to consider who we're welcoming. We need to consider who we're trying to welcome so that we can become more welcoming. (laughs) Okay, and the third one, I think you can see where I'm going with this. The third thing we need to do is we need to understand our audience. So let's talk about technology here for a second because now I've opened the door. There's this uh, great book called Growing Young that I really love. And in this book, there's a quote that says this. Uh, It says it's tempting for older generations to greet young people riveted their devices with four words. Put that thing down. But a better way and a growing young way to respond is to understand why they hunger for that digital connection. And as technology scholar and researcher Dana Boyd suggests, fear isn't the solution. Empathy is right. Sometimes we see younger people. And they have one of these and we go, we want you to leave this at the door. We want you to put this in our pocket. We don't want you to do this anymore. And you know what that is? Interestingly enough, something we don't think about. This is a part of their identity. Let me say that again. This is a part of their identity. And so when you tell somebody to put that away or leave it in the door or leave it in a jacket. You're asking somebody to cut off. See what I did there? That's a callback joke from the circumcision thing. Yeah. Thank you. You're asking people to cut off a part of their identity. And when we're actually truly trying to welcome people, we would never do that. When we welcome people, we say, oh, come as you are. Be yourself. But don't bring that massive part of you. We need to understand why technology uh, is such a big deal. So technology makes young people feel a couple of ways. So let's talk about that really quick. They make it feel more connected and like they have a safety net. We all have like a safe place in our brains or a way to feel like whatever. And and for young people, often the cell phone is this or the technology is this. It's the ability to feel safe. But it also makes them more self-conscious and more unsure about their identity. And this is interesting, too, because older folks that are here, when you went to high school, if you were like a gymnast or played piano or guitar or played football, the best whatever of those that you knew was probably in your sphere of people that you knew in your school uh, in your community, in your newspaper. So what were you comparing yourself to? Like 500 people, 1,000 people, maybe 1,500 people. So maybe you're like the 467th best bowler out of the 1,000 people that you knew. I don't know. But now what kids are doing, they're like, I'm going to learn piano. And they start to learn piano. And then they go on YouTube, and they find 2 billion, with a B, people that are better at piano than them, and they quit. Because they're finding their identity, and as they're shaping their identity and figuring out who they are, they have access to comparison that's really affecting their ability to grow. And as a church, what do we know? We know that our identity is in Christ. We know that our identity isn't in the things that we accomplish or the things that we do or the jobs that we have, or the stuff that we own, or the 17 pillars of lists that that girl had. Our identity is in Jesus. And if we really believe that, then what we really should be doing is finding ways to understand people the best that we can so that we can start to to lean into that and teach them where their identity is. But in order to do that, we need to let them walk in with their whole identity, whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether we like it, whether it's not. It doesn't really matter. It is what it is. And this is what we're doing. And if those are people that we really want to reach and people that we really want to be welcoming to, then what we need to do is we need to consider who we're trying to welcome so we can become more welcoming. Let's all say this together. When we consider who we're trying to welcome we become more welcoming. It is so important to spend time and dig in to who you're trying to welcome. You would never, maybe you would, maybe you're a terrible host, I don't know, but you probably would never invite somebody into your home with a peanut allergy and serve only peanuts, unless it was somebody you didn't like. <laughs> then it would be strategy, <laughs> right? I have a grandmother um, I have a lot of grandmothers because of divorces and this and that, so I'm not going to tell you which one. Um, it doesn't matter. I have a grandmother who, uh, when I would come over, would take the warm caffeine-free Diet Coke that she liked to drink and put it in the fridge for me to drink, which is great. Except the problem is caffeine-free Diet Coke is gross, and it's not something I want, <laughs> And we don't do that when we invite people into our homes. We go, do you have a peanut allergy? Do you like caffeine? Do you like this? Do you like that? But in churches, a lot of times that stops at the door. A lot of time it goes, oh, you're in our space now. And when you're in our space, you will drink our worship-flavored caffeine-free Diet Coke. <laughs> Or you will drink our ministry-flavored whatever-whatever. Or you will drink our dress code flavor-whatever-whatever. Instead of going, you know what? How can we welcome you? How can we make you feel more at home here? These are just a handful of things that I sort of pulled uh, in for this morning. But I think maybe they start the conversation of if we're really truly looking to welcome in and engage a new generation then it's really, really important that we understand who they are. Because when we consider who we're trying to welcome, we become more welcoming. Let's pray together. God, thanks so much for giving us a place um, to try to be welcoming. (laughs) Thanks for giving us a place here at Courtright where we can sing and we can wave flags and we can pray and we can learn. And God, I pray that as we, uh, as we continue to try to grow your kingdom, as we continue to try to spread the word that God, like Peter and like Paul and like Barnabas and all the, the first century Christians, Jesus followers that got around that table in Jerusalem, that we would... Spend intentional time here trying to figure out how to make it easy to tell you about other people or tell other people about you. How we can make it easy to welcome new people into our building, how we can make it easy to welcome new people outside of our building. And God, I just pray that you would be with each and every one of us this morning um, as we really strive to be a people who just wants to see your name uh, be great in our region and in our country uh, and in the world. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Thanks so much.
4: I get an incredible privilege this morning. Um, We call our children, and our children are called in to discipleship where they are and at the age that they are. And I'm really pleased this morning to be able to share a video with you that Chelsea Giesbrecht has put together. She's in Hawaii right now with an organization called YWAM, and I know who's going to forget it was called Youth with a Mission. And she is engaged in a six-month discipleship program where she is doing three months of training and learning and studying scripture and then three months of active service. And she has been uh, growing in faith and as a disciple of God in some really amazing ways. And for any of you who have been able to follow her blog, it's absolutely incredible and it's wonderful to be a part of her journey. And I really recommend that. Actually, maybe we'll just put her blog up on Facebook and in the eblast, so that all of you can connect with what she has been doing and what she's been experiencing. We were going to do this live, but because it's 4 a.m. in Hawaii right now, um, Chelsea was appreciative of not doing it live. And also we were a little concerned about some of the technical issues uh, on her end, as well as on ours. So we decided to do it via video feed. She's prepared for this. She's prayed for this. She's prayed for God to give her words for you not just to share what she's doing, but to have a message to share with your hearts. She left on January 3rd, and she's returning on July 7th, and hopefully she'll give us another update when she comes back, and she'll be finishing up her study period in the next couple weeks. Right, Joan? Yes. So it's a pleasure for me to introduce Chelsea Ysbrecht.
5: Hi, everyone. It's Chelsea, and I'm coming at you from Kona, Hawaii. I'm so pumped that I have a few minutes to share with you guys what I've been up to here and what my next few months are going to look like. So I'm just going to jump right in. So I've been here in Kona doing my lecture phase of my school. um, And that means that every single week I have a different speaker who comes in. They teach on a different topic. And I have like 10 to 15 hours of lecture every week. So I've definitely gleaned a lot of knowledge. I could probably talk for hours. um, But I'm going to try and keep it to five minutes and talk to you about like one or two things that have really stood out to me and that the Lord has just been continually placing on my heart like every single day so the first thing is that the most important thing in our walk with God is our perception of who he is because that literally just like feeds into every area of our life um and obviously the best way to get to know someone is to spend time with them and so just intimacy with Jesus and seeking him in the quiet place and just bring him into like every single part and minute of my day is something I've been really trying to just make a focus um and instill um and the more you spend time with him and the more you like get to know him it's like the more you want I think that's been something really cool to learn is that like my hunger for Jesus like it's not like regular hunger like oh I get fed and then like I'm full it's like the more I get fed the more hungry I am which is just like wild and in awe <laughs> um, and yeah the more you get to know him or the more I've gotten to know him I'm just like seeing his heart I find that I've become like I love him not for what he gives me and not for um the things he can do but for like actually who he is which is such a cool like transition to see um and yeah something a speaker said which I'm pretty sure some like philosophers said this but He said, love God and do whatever you want. And at first when I heard that, I was like, um, what? Like, that seems kind of harsh. But it's so true because once you really, truly, wholeheartedly love God, like, everything you do is just going to be in line with what he says. And when you love someone, like, for real, like, you do anything for them, you're going to look at sin and you're going to be like, that is nasty ew and just like run totally away it's not going to be any more like oh how close can i get to the line it's going to be like how close can i get to jesus um so yeah perception of god and another thing that i really want to share with you all um the speaker said like the first week that really stuck with me is that um the greatest thing that plagues the church today is boredom that we've lost our astonishment of who god is And I would just, like, really challenge you in that. Um, Like, when you see God in the quiet place, are you getting revelation every single day? Are you, like, walking away knowing, like, a little bit more of God's heart and just being, like, in awe of who He is? Because there's no limit to what we can learn about God and what He can teach us about His heart. Um, And, yeah, I don't know, once you really, really know Him... And just like really come to understand that like God gave us a hundred percent. Like He didn't die for us halfway. He didn't even die ninety nine percent. Like He died a hundred percent. So the only really appropriate response is to give a hundred percent back. So that's something I just challenge you in, because um, I've been super challenged <laughs> as well. Um, something else I've been learning, and I'm about to really, truly put into practice, is that the gospel is not meant to stay within the walls of the church. It's called the Great Commission for a reason. It's not the Great Suggestion, but it's commissioning. Um, and it's not just a mantle that is placed on, like, missionaries, um because like we're all missionaries guys and yeah the gospel should be something that your life is just like soaked in like it is your life the gospel um so yeah we've had a lot of opportunities here to just go downtown and like share the gospel with random people pray over them prophesy over them which has been so wild um but in a week and a half i will be flying with my team of 14 other people to the himalayas Um, where that will be, like, our full-time mission for two and a half months. Um, And the organization that we're partnering with has kind of three focuses that I thought I'd share with you. And those are reaching the homeless through, like, feeding programs and events at this, um, like, house they have, um, where they do, like, the feeding programs and prayer and stuff. Um, Also reaching orphans and widows and just really really reinstilling in them, like, their destiny and identity as sons and daughters of Christ. And then also reaching remote villages. So we're going to have the opportunity to do some trekking and reach them with Bibles, um, plant churches. And we're so expectant at how God's going to move in the Himalayas. Um, The harvest is so incredibly ripe there. So um, we're expecting lots of salvations and healings and miracles. And it's just going to be insane. And then after that, I'm going to Peru for a couple of weeks to partner with a organization called One Nation, One Day. And to put it in short, Peru is going to be changed in a day with the gospel of Jesus. And it's going to be wild. Um, so, yeah, that is all the time I have. But I'm so excited again that I could share with you guys just like a snippet of what I've been up to and what my next few months are going to look like. I hope that I can share more when I get home because I could literally talk for hours about just... How insane Jesus is. Um, But, yeah, just thank you for all your ongoing support and your prayers. Um, It means the absolute world to me. And, yeah, that's all for now. (laughs) Bye, guys. Hi, everyone.
6: That is so awesome to see Chelsea. I mean, this is where technology um, is just such an amazing thing. We can moan and groan about cell phones, but when we can see Chelsea live like that and to hear what has been happening is just truly wonderful. Um, my name is Ramona brown Monsour and it's my pleasure and privilege this morning to lead us in the prayers of the people. Would you join me in prayer? Our loving and gracious Heavenly Father... Thank you for the coming of spring and the change of seasons, for the fun of March break, and for safety as many families return this weekend. Thank you for your message to us this morning, and we pray that we would become a welcoming and open congregation. May your Holy Spirit enable us to do that. Lord, this week we pray for the victims of the mosque shooting in New Zealand. For the 50 who died and for the 11 still in critical care. We pray for their families, for comfort, and especially for the four-year-old who was flown to Auckland. We pray too for the shooter and his family and for the ramifications for all those affected. We pray for our mission partner, Jim Klass, currently teaching a two-week course on discipleship at a seminary in Argentina. We pray for his interaction for the students. And Lord, too, we do lift up Chelsea to you. And we pray for safety as she travels with her team to Nepal in the next few weeks. And we pray for their time there and for their ministry, Lord, for the exciting things you are doing in the lives of these young people. We pray for those in our congregation in need of your healing. And we lift up Carol Osborne and Margaret Cohen to you, as well as Sylvia Quinn, who has gone back into hospital. Lord, we pray for parents in our congregation. It's, a ch- it's challenging to parent, whether our children are infants, teens, or transitioning to independent adults. We pray for wisdom at each stage of their lives. We pray for marriages that struggle with the demands of parenting and difficult decisions that may need to be made. May these parents know our love and our concern for them. May their children see them join their hands in prayer and seek your counsel, your guidance. We pray for our church leaders, for Alex, Allison, Dale,